On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Karen. Oh, flicked in that direction. Six. It's going to go over. Oh. 50 for Maxwell. He's second this season, 11th in his career. And it's one of brilliance. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Mensel, a.k.a. Menners, and the Big Bash semifinals are finally here. A lot of you thought it was never going to happen, but the semis are here, and we've got a big podcast to go through all the Big Bash news. To come, I'll be speaking to Ben Dwarshus from the Sydney Sixers, and then the Uh, CEO of Cricket Tasmania, Nick Cummins, who's been guiding the Hurricanes through this season. But to to kick things off, I've got Sam Landsberger from the Herald Sun on the phone to talk about the semi-final matchup. Sam, how are you? Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Mate, I've loved our Big Bash chats all summer, and you must be pretty stoked that both Melbourne sides are through to the semi-finals, the Stars and the Renegades. Yeah, it's been a really positive finish for the both the Melbourne teams all of a sudden. Obviously, the Stars needed to win the last game to, to scrape in, and they did that in really dominant fashion, and they also delivered the Renegades a home semi-final. So all of a sudden, both Melbourne teams entered semi-final week on a bit of a high. And as we've seen many times in this competition, if you peak at the right time and it, and it clicks come finals time, you usually win the thing. So a really positive start to the week in Melbourne. Yeah, very positive from the Stars and the Renegades. Let's talk about the final group game of the season. You know, the Stars v the Sixers at the MCG. Going into that game, the Stars had to win the match to secure a, a semi-final spot. And I really felt like there was a lot on the line, not just for the Stars, but also for Glenn Maxwell, because he's had a sort of quiet back half of the Big Bash. He's captain of the Stars. And I felt if he had a bad game and the Stars missed the semis, there'd be a lot of criticism headed his way. Yeah, I think you're right in a lot of aspects. I think his record against Sydney Sixers bowlers was pretty imposing going in. So he was sort of billed as a man, certainly in the uh, in the local media as the most likely player to, to put them into the semi-finals. But what really struck me about his innings at the MCG was that he started swinging with about three and a half overs left to go. Now, if he goes out, Jackson Bird is in, and it's Jackson Bird and Seb Gotch to close the innings. So every time he swung the bat, he basically knew that if he failed to connect, there might be season over. So to have that courage and to still pull off his throw play, I thought was just a magnificent innings. And, you know, that is why, in a lot of people's eyes, he's, you know, arguably the most important player or one of the most important players to Australia's World Cup hopes this year because he can take a game, a game away from you very, very quickly. And I think he's really matured as captain this year and it's a, a wonderful knock. And to see over the years uh, what the Stars means to Glenn Maxwell made it just that little bit more special because I don't think you'd, you'd struggle to find a player across the whole big bash league that is as invested as in, in his club as he is. So was really thrilled for Maxwell to, uh, to, 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 to get the Stars in the top four and, 
now he'll get his chance to cap them in semi-final, which will be a, a really special one for him. Yeah, it was quite a response from Maxwell. I mean, the Stars had barely 120 runs on the board with four overs to go, and then Maxi went off with six sixes, ended up 82 off 43 balls. Then in the field, he took a wicket. He took a couple of great catches. So really was a, a fine captain's performance. And uh, as you say, the the stars now go into the semi-finals with with some nice momentum. Also, I thought that was important with the stars winning was that justice was done, and the Brisbane Heat were eliminated from the Big Bash after that sort of farcical situation at the Gabba with the lights going out. The Sydney Thunder uh, even now will still feel aggrieved because you know, had they gone on to win that match at the Gabba, they would have been level on points with the stars and possibly in the semi-finals. It's a really good point about the. Brisbane Heat, look, I, I think all Cricket Australia officials were probably wearing their green scarves yesterday, hoping the Stars would get up because it would have been really embarrassing if the Heat had played finals um, based off a, a power outage and then potentially won the thing. I mean, my goodness, Brisbane Heat v Hobart Hurricane, um, given the form Brisbane's top order suddenly found themselves in, that, that, that shape is a real real possibility that Brisbane could advance to the grand final based on their, their form in the, in the last game. And that just would have been a, a really embarrassing look for CA, man. I mean, it's 2019 and we had a game called off because some of the light towers went out. That's just not acceptable. And yeah, I, I think justice was done. As you, you, you're very rightly put. Thank goodness that Brisbane Heat isn't playing finals on the back of that. You have to give the Heat some credit, though. They gave themselves a massive chance of playing the finals. On Friday night, they chased down uh, over 150 in 10 overs with Cutting and Max Bryant going off. I mean, that was some of the most brutal hitting I've ever seen in the Big Bash. And, you know, I felt sorry for the Brisbane Heat crowd because I think they all needed helmets. Like, the way the ball was <laughs> travelling over the fence at the Gabba was dangerous. It, it was absolutely sweating. I was up there for it. And, like, it, it, you just, everyone sort of in the press box even was just laughing the whole innings. Like, is this really happening? Um, I, I spoke to a few of the Stars players the, the, the next day and they said that it actually got quite wet on the ground. They, they lost control of the ball. Um, it, it was really dewy, but my goodness, that still doesn't bode. That, does, that still doesn't play into what was unfolding um, at the other end. And, geez, imagine if the uh, the Stars had set a higher total. I mean, how far could Brisbane Heat have gone? They were on track for 316 runs. It was almost a shame that you know, we had to we had to stop the game because they, they'd won it. Uh, we just wanted it to, to see how far they could go. Yeah, I was really glad Max Bryant made 71 not out of 30 balls. I've been watching him all season and he's got a lot of starts. Hasn't made a 50 yet. So important for a young player like that just to, to make the big score. And heading into next season, I know it's a while away, I reckon Max Bryant's one to watch. Yeah, definitely. Only 19 years old, isn't he? So certainly a star of the future. Not, not the best speaker on fold. I think him and Ben Cutton didn't have too much to say in the middle. In fact, I asked Cutts what the uh, what the uh, talk was mid-innings. He said, mate, Max, he doesn't really speak much. They just kept trying to clear the ropes. So might need to work on his media polish. Uh, might have to get a little bit more polish in the meter, I should say. But yeah, one hell of a talent. Can certainly hit a long ball. The first uh, Big Bash coach is gone. Dan Vittori has been given his marching orders from the Brisbane Heat. Uh, one of our colleagues at the Courier Mail, Travis Main, thinks James hopes is a chance to come in and take over the coaching role at the Heat. But yeah, Vittori gone and the Kiwi influence in Brisbane 
uh, now over with McCullum and Vittori gone. Yeah, and probably about time. It hasn't worked for a few years now. They've had a game plan that just quite hasn't worked. They've missed the finals again. And given the talent they've got on paper, that's a pretty disappointing season. Yeah, it is. Uh, now on to another disappointment, Sam. Now, you know I, I live in Sydney, and, and I put in my calendar for Friday night in pencil, home semi-final SCG. And now going into yesterday's game, the Sixers, all they had to do was not lose by a lot to the Stars and they'd host the semi-final for the first time in five years. And then when they were chasing, the Sixers, I think, needed to make 107 or 108 to, to stay in second spot and secure a home semi. And then they were all out for 74. It was absolutely sh- shocking from the Sixers. And they've, they've coughed up a chance to host a home semi-final. I can't believe it. Oh, it was staggering. I mean, going into the game, we all thought, um, you know, happy days that the Stars win and the Sixers don't get flogged. They, they both got what they come there for. But that batting performance was was disgraceful, um, as was the finish of the ball. Moses on Rink said it was the worst performance in the field for the season. I'd like to put a, bit, a little bit of heat on Moses. I was really surprised that they won the toss and bowled first. I mean, if the Stars were chasing, they would have had to chase down whatever Sydney scored inside about 12 overs. Now, they would have been doing that with the Stars season on the line. I don't think they would have gone the tonk. I think they would have very calmly batted down whatever target there was in, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 overs just to sneak into the finals. And the Stars didn't have to win by a big margin. Um, oh, that surprised me at the time. And, and certainly in hindsight, it's, uh, it's just about cost them a home semi-final. But it was it was just an implosion. They they that they, they yeah they couldn't hit it off the square. The stars bowled really well, mind you. Glenn Maxwell said there were still a few deliveries which frustrated him as captain. He's going to have a, a talk to a few bowlers during the week. So they they still think there's room for improvement with the ball. But yeah, as you say, to to be coming back to Melbourne on the back of that, it's it's just unforgivable. You mentioned Moses Enriques, the captain. The the batting tactics by the Sixers were just awful. I mean, the first thing you do is secure a home semi final. So I guess perhaps the Sixers you know thought about winning the game. They went too hard early and they found themselves four for not many and panic set in. Yeah, I asked Moses after the game, was the target to win the game or just to get the hundred and eight runs needed? And he said, Listen, it was to win the game, but everyone had it in the back of their minds, we only need 108. And he probably thought having that confusion in your mind wasn't great for them, which again goes back to the to, to the point, you had the decision. Why did you choose to bat first, knowing that that was going to be you know, a, a mental factor? So, look, I, I, I think the mindset was probably wrong. If they had that time again, they, they would probably go about it differently. That being said, though, um, I, I don't think it's going to have a huge bearing on who wins on Friday night. The Sixers won at Marvel Stadium this year. The Renegades won at the SCG this year. I know the Sixers had a really strong finish to the season at home, but yeah, I, I still think that, that game is uh, pretty close to even money. They both lose an international with Tom Curran going to the West Indies and Mohamed Nabi staggeringly called to India before the Afghanistan series even starts. So they're both down a player, and I don't see the home ground. I don't see it being a huge advantage to the Red team. It's a huge disadvantage to me, Sam, because I can't go to the semi-final <laughs> now, so I'm spitting chips. Uh, just on a couple of teams that missed out uh, from the semi-finals, the Strikers and the Scorchers, you and I both had them as having good big bashes before the summer, but both of them never really got going. I thought with the Adelaide strikers, Rashid Khan just didn't get enough support with the ball, and I also thought their batting lacked a bit of power. 
Yeah, well, that, that did that certainly did surprise me. I've learned a lesson over the past couple of years now. Every time you, you, you do your preseason ladder, just flip it because you're probably going to be you're probably going to be closer if you you flip it and you have who you you think's going to come last actually coming first. I, I had those two on top before the season. I thought they were clearly the best teams on paper. In fact, I still think the Perth Scorchers eleven on paper is the best in the competition. But they didn't adjust to their new home ground. Yeah, they, they couldn't get any consistency. I think they they heavily missed Justin Langer. I think there was a bit of a hangover from from him leaving that team. He had them, them just so brilliantly run. And yeah, the strikers, as you said, just never really got going. Um, Rashid Khan didn't quite have the same influence as he did last year. Uh, and I think that just shows you how tight this competition is. I mean, we all know anyone can beat anyone on any given day. And even though we've gone from eight games to 10 games to 14 games, it still is largely a lottery. And that's probably why three of the semifinalists are going to the final series on the back of a loss. Uh, it's, uh, it is just so unpredictable. Yeah, I think with Rashid Khan, opposition batsmen started to just sit on him and just try and get a runner ball and not lose a number of wickets in his overs. And then the other bowlers couldn't really make up the, the slack. Also with the Scorchers, I thought two key bowlers for them, Andrew Ty and Usman Kadir uh, probably didn't have the seasons they were after, and that left the bowling a bit short. And then uh, Ashton Turner looked in great form for the Scorchers and uh, has been rewarded with an Aussie call-up, but didn't quite have the support, enough support throughout the season. So, yep, two fancy teams miss out. Now, Sam, I want to put an idea to you. We're about to talk about the semi-final matchups and the Hurricanes take on the Stars on Thursday at Blundstone Arena. And if the Stars beat the Hurricanes, the Hurricanes are one and done out of the semi-finals, which I think they need to look at um, changing the final setup for next year and giving first and second on the Big Bash ladder a double chance, like they do in the IPL. You have one V2 playoff for a spot in the final, three V4 is an eliminator, and then uh, the winner of the 3v4 game plays the loser of the 1v2 game for a spot in the final. Do you like it? Oh, I've been writing this for literally six years. I can't believe that with the expanded season, Cricket Australia hasn't gone and done that. It is just so obvious. The final system is broken. The, the, the grand final is played on Sunday, the first final on Thursday. So, you know, potentially, as what happened last year, if Friday night's winner hosts the semi final, they've got less than 48 hours to promote the game and sell tickets. Why do we have such a drawn out season and then a final series that's over in a blink inside, you know, two, three days? It doesn't make sense. There is no reward for those top two teams. It's bloody hard to finish on top after 14 games, let alone still by two games clear as the Hurricanes have done. Five of the past six minor premiers have choked in, up in their home semi-finals. So history says the Stars uh, are, are a very good chance this Thursday night. It's just simply not enough reward. Uh, and I'm staggered I haven't done this already. Mind you, I, I think that there are plans in the works to, to, to reformat the final system next year. I mean, we're having an afternoon day final so we can, so we can watch My Kitchen Rules on Channel 7 Sunday night. Ooh, it, just doesn't work. it just doesn't work at the moment. And uh, I think Korean Australia will, will fix it next year. Well, Sam, I'm so glad I've got an ally in that because I wasn't sure how you'd take that one, but you just took all the words right out of my mouth. It's, it has to happen. <laughs> so um, you keep working on Cricket Australia down there. I'll keep working up here and hopefully we'll get some results. Uh, let's talk about the Hurricanes v. Stars. Huge matchup. I think if the Stars can get weighed and short out early, then they have a huge chance in the game. Yeah, that's certainly the key, isn't it? I think those two have put on 8.50 run opening stands. 
uh, already this summer, which is just a, a ridiculous record. I had a bit of a chat to a couple of Hurricanes insiders. I think one of their batting KPIs is to only be two wickets down after 10 overs. That's how the Hurricanes measure their success. So clearly early wickets is the key. If the, the Stars can have two, maybe three down in the power play, it'll go a, a long way to winning. And, and they're clear. And we say they're the keys, but it's still a really strong middle order. I mean, the Renegades had the Hurricanes three for 11 at Marvel Stadium this year. And then Ben McDermott and George Bailey put on a really strong middle order partnership and still got them to a, a really competitive total. So, you know, all the, all the focus is on short and wide, but they've actually still got the match winners below there, and that's why they're such a well-balanced team, and that's probably why they finished two games clear on top. Oh, they are the team to beat for, for mine, and yeah, they're, they're loaded with match winners, which is yeah, which is what you need in this form of the game. And the Stars have got a few match winners. Lama Shane is back from uh, Nepalese commitments to play for the Stars. Oh, no, he was playing in the Bangladesh Premier League, wasn't he? Uh, a bit of both. Yeah, Bangladesh and then for Nepal as well. And you've got, you know, Maxi Stoinis and Zampa all in the side. So there's enough class in the Stars. It's going to be a, a ripping game. And I guess, you know, there's there's a chance of an all-Melbourne home final if the Renegades and the Stars both win. There is. It's only the second time uh, in BBL history that both Melbourne teams have both made the finals. They've never faced each other. In a final, I think this is the first time since way back in BBL 2 that they both made it and they both lost their semi-finals that year. I'm still a little bit worried about the Stars. You know, they had that magnificent win against the Sydney Sixers to, to close the season, but it just looks like they're carrying a couple of players. Nick Maddinson hasn't you know, really fired a shot yet. I think his highest score in nine games is 19 runs. Dwayne Bravo doesn't look the, the player he, he used to be. He's sort of a bit of a shadow of himself, both with bat and ball. So there's just a couple of players there which, you know, they're just hanging on to. Ben Dunk as well, you know, two seasons into his five-year contract now. Still really struggling at the top of the order. You know, we all marvel at Marcus Doinus and Glenn Maxwell and Zampa and Lamashania, as you say, but if they don't fire, it, 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 they, they really do struggle. So I think they just need some of their lesser lights to to stand up on Thursday night if, if they get, if they do advance to the grand final. Agree. And let's look at the second semi-final. You've got the, the Renegades hosting the Sixers, which I'm still annoyed about. So as you said, both the Sixers and the Renegades have lost uh, star import current and Nabi for the Renegades. I think it's going to be a pretty even matchup. What's your reading of the Marvel Stadium pitch? Uh, I think the Renegades have finally figured it out. Um, I, I spoke to Dan Christian last week. He said at the start of the season they were batting like they were trying to get 200 there. Now they know that that's just that's just uh, not realistic. They know now that you know 150, even 140, 130 can be a, a winning score there. So it's really tricky to play. It's unpredictable. Um, you know the outfield's not great. So, but oh, but I think they've got that down pat now. We've seen a couple of instances where you know uh, opposition batsmen have been run out because you know that they they run their their bat on the wrong side of the turf. So the Renegades, you know, they, they know not to do that. They know how to play the wicket. So there is a, an advantage from that sense. They've, they've got the, the the experience there to play what is probably the hardest pitch in Australia. So that is an advantage for them. Just on the the, the Narby situation, this is a disgrace. I, I think this is. Really embarrassing for both the Renegades and the Big Bash League to have him pulled out um, on the eve of a semi-final when he won't be playing at international level until four days after the BBL Grand Final really does stink. Uh, it's unfair the Renegades can't find a replacement player. Uh, that rule doesn't make any sense. And, and it robs the semi-final of star power, and that's what's going to get fans through the gates. So 
Uh, I, I think this is a mess. I think the Renegades are, are absolutely seeding privately. Uh, and I, I just think it's another poor look for the competition. Yeah, I don't know if the, the competition could do much about it, but it. Well, they could let them find a new player. Yeah, but it's yeah, but it's poor by Afghanistan cricket. It is to, to yeah, call him is. over no, for you, a you training camp. He'd get more experience playing in the big batch than he would bowling in the nets. Just with the the Marvel pitch, you know, I think the Sixers are well placed with. Stephen O'Keefe, perhaps Lloyd Pope, perhaps Menenti, all spinners to perform. Lyon. Uh, Lyon, of course. Yeah, Nathan Lyon. That, he's a huge inclusion. So, you know, they're well-placed to take advantage if it's a sort of slow-turning pitch. So who do you favour, Renegades or the Sixers? Oh, just on the pitch. I mean, I spoke to Moses on Reg about this yesterday. He said that it was quite funny when they had that low-scoring game there earlier this year. It was the Renegades team that did all the damage, and then, uh, the Sixers spinners did all the damage. So, uh, you know, there, there is a little bit in it for, for, for uh, both attacks. Oh, look, look I, I think it, uh, it has to suit the Renegades. I mean, they've played there five times this year. I think they've won three, lost two. They've just got that, that little bit of extra know-how with Intel on this pitch. I think, I think it's got a favour there. All right. So you're favouring the Renegades. What about the first one, Hurricanes v. Stars? What's your tip? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, just only. I think I know history says the stars will probably cause an upset because that's what happens to the teams that finish first. But the Hurricanes just have looked that strong all summer. You'd have to tip them, and which would mean they'd also host the grand final. Well, a, a good tip, Sammy. I'm sort of leaning towards the stars and the Sixers winning their games, which would mean you just want you just want a final at the SCG, and that's the only way you can get it. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you saw straight through that one very easily, Sam. All right, last thing before I let you go. One thing about the end of uh, the Big Bash is having all the Australian stars involved lifts the competition up. There is no doubt if you can't get the overseas players, at least we should have our Australian international players involved as much as possible. So surely the, the Cricket Australia have to work towards getting more Australian stars involved for longer in the Big Bash. Yeah, you bang on. Look, I think on Saturday in Canberra, it was just about a dead rubber between the, the Hurricanes and the Thunder. But how good was it, you know, watching Paddy Cummins team into uh, to, to bowl it? You know, it just, it just added a number of dimensions. So, oh, look, I, I think that's certainly the end goal, but there's just so much cricket. I, I, I think that's probably more unlikely than likely, but my goodness, it, it, uh, it did make for good viewing. And on a side note, how bizarre that these blokes are taking home a full, a full year's salary despite playing one game. So, there's a, there's a few bugs which still need to be on out of the system. But, yeah, it was magnificent, but, yeah, I wouldn't get used to it. Yeah, I just hope they can give more of a gap in the international calendar uh, for Australian players. But, yeah, as you say, the few kinks to iron out. Sam, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Can't wait for the, the semifinals and the final of the Big Bash. And hopefully we can talk after uh, it's all decided and look back. I'm sure we can. And good luck to the Stars and the Sixers so you can get along to the SCG on Sunday. Thanks, okay. Sammy. Have a good one. Uh, you too. That was Sam Landsberger from the Herald Sun in Melbourne. All right, coming up in a moment, I have a left arm quick from the Sydney Sixers, Ben Dwarshus, on the show. But before I get to that interview, I just want to remind you all, if you have a moment, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever app you listen to podcasts on. If you subscribe to the show, you will get every new episode delivered to your smartphone or, or tablet um, straight away when it's re- released. Google Podcasts, Player FM, Pocket Casts, of course, Apple Podcasts are all great apps 
to listen to podcasts on. I just want to remind you, if you have a moment, please go on and leave a review for the podcast. You know, I've had some good reviews lately and some not so good ones, but if you could go on there and leave a review for the show, I'd be really happy to hear your feedback. All right, coming up after the break, Ben Dwarshus from the Sydney Sixers. Straight through him, Hazlitt gone, Ben Dwarshus breaks through, is in wicket-taking form, the big lefty. That's the one the Sixers needed early. Welcome back to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. Joining me now is Sydney Sixers left-arm quick, Ben Dwarshus. Ben, tough loss last night for the Sixers against the Stars. Yeah, it certainly was. It's not the you know, it's not the result that we wanted, especially, you know, we built up some good momentum going into the finals and that sort of just halts that a little bit. But, you know, we'll be looking to come out pretty hard against the Renegades down in Melbourne on Friday. What did uh, Moses Enriquez and the coach say after the game about the performance? Yeah, I mean, obviously, obviously no one was pleased with it. And, you know, there were a few words spoken, but the main message was that it's in the past and, you know, you got to you got to put those sort of things behind you, and don't let it affect your next game. So, you know, while it was obviously a negative result, it was a pretty positive spin, and thankfully we'd already secured that final spot, so we can look forward to that, and you know, hopefully, you know, get back into our winning ways come Friday. Yeah, and how disappointed was the group to not secure a home semi final when it it seemed like you had a really good chance at hosting a semi? Yeah, we we're yeah very disappointed. You know, we love we love playing at home. We got a great great crowd base and you know on a Friday night in Sydney it would have been a, a really good crowd to play in front of but you know that's just an added challenge for us now to go, come back down to Melbourne and you know play with a hostile crowd rather than a favourable crowd so um, you know that was, it was pretty disappointing but you know hopefully if we get a win and can somehow sneak a, a home final we can make it up to them that way. Yeah that'd be great I'd love to uh, <laughs> I'm in Sydney so I'd love a home final I'd get to go to it. <laughs> You know, you, you had a week off before the game. Do, do you think that affected the team's momentum? Uh, yes and no. I mean, you can, you can get into the swing of things when you're, when you're on the back-to-back like we were and a little break and do that. But I think, you know, we've had a pretty pretty strenuous tournament. So I think, you know, everybody's bodies were starting to get a little bit sore and, you know, needed a little bit of time off. So I, I, I don't think it's, it's down to that. But, you know, we prepared really well leading into it as well. So I maybe sore a little bit, but... You know, on the day, we just weren't good enough and the Stars played a really good game. So, yeah, Do you feel like it's also a bit of a wake-up call for the semi-finals, just sort of snap everyone back into into action? Yeah, yeah I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a good way to look at it. You, you know, you just sort of let everyone know that we're not just going to, just because you won four in a row at home doesn't mean that you're just going to keep on winning. So a nice little wake-up call and, you know, we'll be, we'll be better for it come Friday. Absolutely. Now, uh, unfortunately, your star input... Tom Curran has been called up to England. He's heading over to the West Indies. Good place to go. But is he going to be a missed for you guys? Yeah, definitely. You know, he's a guy who's contributed you know, really well for us all throughout the tournament with both bat and ball. So when you've got guys like that, it's really hard to replace. But, you know, I think we've got, you know, we've got a really good squad and we've got some really good players who have been itching at the bit to get out there. And, you know, this is going to present an opportunity for one of them to have a crack. And they've all been, you know, training really hard in the nets and, I'm confident that no matter who who we bring in, they'll be able to do a job and contribute to a team success, hopefully. Yeah, and uh, 
you've been in cracking form this summer for the Sixers. I mean, you're going at under seven runs per over, which in, in T20 cricket is just phenomenal. Did, did getting a call up to the Australian T20 side at the end of last season give you a bit more confidence coming into this big bash? Yeah, definitely. You know, it's, it's, it's always nice to know that you're, you're being looked at and, and viewed upon that way. And it was, well, I didn't get to play a game for them, but it was, you know, it was a great learning experience being around the squad and the setup and hanging out with guys that, you know, at the top of the game and, and are getting picked and playing for Australia. So, you know, I took a lot of confidence out of that and a, a lot of learning. That's something that I've tried to, to put into my game this year. And so far, it's been quite successful. Absolutely. What's your uh, specified role in the Sixers? You know, when Moses or the coach take you aside, what what do they sort of say to you? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's sort of, not, we don't really speak too specifically about that, but, you know, I'm certainly one that, you know, been told to try and you know, swing the ball early on and, you know, be pretty aggressive early on and try and pick up a wicket in the power play. And then whether it be, you know, to try and break a partnership or everything batters just come in through the middle, try and go out there and, and try and buy fast and try and cause something to happen there, whether it's a cheap over or a wicket. And then, you know, at the death, trying to hit my Yorker and, you know, trying to keep it tight. Yeah, would be my role, yeah. And I've been looking at some of the stats from the Sixers. What what really stood out for me was that the runs and the wickets are really shared around. You know, there's no real standout run score. It's pretty even. Uh, is there a sort of really good team spirit in the Sixers? Yeah, definitely. Everybody loves being around everyone. You know, we have a, we have a great time playing together and training together. And I think that shows on the field and... You know, as you said, all the runs and the wickets have been shared around. When we're when we're playing well, it seems that if two guys get run one game, then another two will get runs the next game. So I think that's a really good sign that everybody's shown a bit of form throughout the season, and that yeah, when they're required, they can get the job done. So I think that'll hold us in good stead. Is there anyone in the team that particularly sort of uh, is vocal, you know, in the dressing room and keeps the energy up, as you know, talking a lot? Uh, well, so. so Stephen O'Keefe is pretty vocal. He's a bit of a larrikin and, and gets everyone up and about. And Tom Curran was also very good at that as well. He came in and brought some really good energy. So, you know, there's, there's definitely a few guys in there that do sort of pump everyone up and get them going. So I think they're, they're vital people in the team because when you're going out on the field, if you've got a, a good pep talk and you're fired up, it certainly helps. Yeah, you can hear Stephen O'Keefe from the sidelines sometime on the field <laughs> chatting away. So I'm not surprised he's... Uh, one of the most vocal in the dressing room. Ben, just before I let you go, let's have a quick look at your opponents in the semi-final, the Melbourne Renegades. You're going to play them at Marvel Stadium. I was just speaking to the Herald Suns journalist, Sam Landsberger, and he reckons it's a it's a pretty tough wicket to play on at Marvel Stadium. What's your reading of the conditions you'll face? Yeah, I mean, watching the games there this year, looks like the wicket's been pretty slow and a little bit low and a bit tougher batting. But, you know, we played there earlier in the year and, yeah, we managed to, to to beat them down there. You know, we defended a pretty low total, I think, if I remember. So, um, yeah, we'll take good confidence with that, knowing that we can beat them in their home conditions. Yeah, I think it'll be. I think we we played with the roof on last game because there's a bit of rain around, which you know might change things a little bit depending on what the weather's going to be like down here on Friday. But yeah, I think we'll be we'll be pretty adaptable as we have been all year, and you know we'll keep a pretty open mind until we see what the wicket's got for us come Friday. If the roof is closed, is it hard not to be tempted and try and hit it? <laughs> uh, you have to ask one of the batters that. I think that we actually, when it was closed, we did try and hit a few balls up there and it's, it's a bit higher than what you think. So 
I think trying to just clear, clear the boundary in a conventional manner might be a better way to go. And uh, finally, you know, the Renegades, are, they're, they're chock full of batting talent with Aaron Finch and Marcus Harris, Tom Cooper, Dan Christian. How much sort of time will you spend with the bowlers sort of coming up with plans to nullify them? Uh, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll spend a little bit of time. You know, the, most of the bowling group have, have played against these guys a fair bit throughout their careers. So everyone has their own sort of plans and, and know what they're going to do. So... Yeah, Andre Adams, our bowling coach, gives us some good freedom and, and you know, backs, what, backs how we see it and backs what we want to do, which is always nice to know that you've got you know, the support of the coaching staff behind you. So yeah, we'll, have, we'll have a chat about all of them and, and come up with some certain plans. But you, know, it's, you never want to be locked into those plans. You always want to have a, a plan B and a plan C. So we'll certainly give them some attention. And you know, hopefully, if everything goes well, the plans come off and we can get those sort of guys out cheaply, which will put us in a good position. Yeah, with Aaron Finch, I think you need a plan D and E as well. Peace that's going. <laughs> exactly right. A final question. You just mentioned Andre Adams. I had him on the last podcast, and he, he seems like he's doing really good work at New South Wales and the Sixers. It, it just seems like he's really connected with the bowling group. Yeah, he is. He's doing, he's doing a really good job. He's um, he's a very good thinker of the game, and he, he, he makes you think in, in particular ways as well, rather than just running in and bowling. He makes you think about you know where where you want the batsman to hit it rather than where the batter's going to hit it. So you just sort of frame things a bit differently to make you think about it. You know, it was a really good relationship with all the, all the bowlers. He's a great guy. It's great to have around the group. So he's certainly been a great introduction for us. And, you know, I think all the quicks are really enjoying working with him. Are you sitting next to him? All right, <laughs> all right Benny. Uh, thanks so much for your time on the podcast. Good luck in the semifinals and uh, hopefully uh, home final for the Sixers. Fingers crossed. Thanks, Andrew. Take care. Bye. See you, mate. Bye. That was Ben Dwarshus from the Sydney Sixers. And coming up soon, I've got a feature interview with Nick Cummins, who's the CEO of Cricket Tasmania. And we're going to talk about all the issues surrounding the Big Bash. But first, I want to give you my opinions on some of the recent cricket news that has come to light since the last podcast. All right, the first bit of news, David Saker has resigned as assistant coach to the Australian team. Ricky Ponting is his replacement for the 50-over World Cup with someone else to take the job for the Ashes. Uh, I think what they're looking at doing is, in the lead-up to the World Cup in the Ashes, sort of splitting the role between a test assistant coach and a one-day assistant coach. Now, there are whispers and rumours that David Saker and Justin Langer didn't see eye-to-eye on some issues. I mean, you have to say it was always a possibility that Langer would make changes to the backroom staff once he was settled in. Uh, This might have come sooner than expected for Langer, but Saker resigned effective immediately last week. But you really have to question Australia's bowling tactics throughout the summer and therefore David Saker's role in coming up with those tactics. The Australian quick bowlers did not get one LBW all summer, which seems like they're bowling the wrong lines. If you're not bowling at the stumps enough, then you're not going to get LBW. So so that was the first little danger sign that maybe David Saker's relationship with the bowlers was breaking down. Also, uh, during the, the Manika Oval Test match against Sri Lanka, Mitchell Stark made some veiled comments about not listening to all the coaches that had been giving him advice and just sort of uh, talking to Andre Adams and Mitchell Johnson. So, you know, that's not a great look for David Saker, although it, it might not have been the reason he resigned it. It does show that maybe... 
that relationship was degenerating between Saker and the Quicks, as would happen when the performances go down. It puts strange on the, strains on those relationships. His replacement, though, Ricky Ponting, is a great hire. You know, he's played 375 one-day games and won three World Cups, Ricky Ponting. So he will bring in a load of experience to the, the preparation for the one-day World Cup. And I just think it's great from Cricket Australia that they were able to find enough money to lure Ricky Ponting into a coaching role. All right, the other uh, big news is Australia's one-day international squad to tour India has been announced. Uh, two omissions from the last squad, Mitch Marsh and Peter Siddle, go out. Stark and Hazelwood are injured. So in comes Kane Richardson. And the attack also includes Nathan Coulton-Isle and Jason Berendorf. A player who's been picked, Ashton Turner, is a bit of a bolter. Obviously done really well for the Perth Scorchers. He looks like a pretty good white ball player, Turner. So I'm glad to see him there. But I can't believe Matthew Wade has been left out. Matthew Wade has been scoring runs in the Shield, in the Big Bash, in the 50-over competition. I mean, there's nothing more Matthew Wade could do to, to knock the door down, to get back into the Australian side. And my main problem with not picking him is that I think you're wasting some incredible form by Matthew Wade. With the, the state of Australia's batting, if someone is batting so well, you have to give them a chance in the Australian side, whether it's as a backup keeper, whether it's as keeper and you give Alex Carey the punt. I mean, they've called in Darcy Short to cover for Sean Marsh, who will hit the tour late because of the birth of a child. I mean, I would have given Matthew Wade a shot ahead of Darcy Short. So I just cannot believe Matthew Wade is continually being overlooked. And when someone is in such blazing form like him, he's only 31 years old, give him another crack at international level because the way we've gone in the last couple of years, especially at the 50-over level, we need some kind of explosive batsman in there. So, so get Matthew Wade in, give him a chance and see how he goes. But the selectors have ignored him again. Speaking of the selectors, Greg Chappell has announced he will uh, retire from cricket, basically. Uh, his, you know, his role at Cricket Australia as development manager will, will cease and he will stop being a selector at the end of the Ashes. I would like to see it happen a bit sooner, but I can also understand that there needs to be some stability behind the scenes. Pat Howard's gone. They still haven't filled the high-performance role. Belinda Clark's doing it. But until they really bed down the high-performance role and come up with a new structure for the selection panel, that unless you've got someone ready to step in for Greg Chappell, it's pretty hard to make him leave now. So I don't love the fact that he's going to be there till the end of the Ashes, but I think it's kind of something that needs to happen while we sort of plan for the future and build a new selection panel with a more modern approach. All right, and last bit of news, a huge shout-out to the New South Wales Breakers and uh, their captain, Elisa Healy. The Breakers won their 20th Women's National Cricket League title on Saturday, beating Queensland in the final. And I'm just so happy for the New South Wales team. They are so good to deal with. I've had the pleasure of interviewing many players in that team, and they are such great personalities, so lovely, so giving of their time, so willing to open up on the podcast. And I'm really happy for them that they won the title. And Elisa Healy is an absolute gem, one of my favourite cricketers in the world. So I'm glad that in her first year as captain, they could win the title. The only sad bit of news out of that is... 
Elise Perry is moving to Melbourne and will be playing for Victoria next year in the WNCL. So uh, that's happening because her husband, Matt Tamua, is playing rugby for the Melbourne Rebels. So she's going to be based down there. I'm uh, shattered that she's leaving, but good luck to her and well done to the New South Wales Breakers. Coming up after the break, Nick Cummins, CEO of Cricket Tasmania, talking about the Hurricanes Big Bash campaign and all the issues floating around the Big Bash. And Matthew Wade decides to go large, takes on the boundary rider and clears him by metres. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. Now, joining me to talk about the Big Bash is the CEO of Cricket Tasmania and the man in charge of the Hurricanes as well, Nick Cummins. Nick, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you very much. Very well. Well, it's a good time to get you on the podcast because the Hurricanes have just been in cracking form this summer. What do you think you can put some of their success down to? I think it's a combination of things. I think the continuity of the squad throughout the uh, the summer has really helped the players understand their roles and, and what they need to do. Um, Wade and Short's form with the bat has been outstanding and then Faulkner and Archer have been very good with the ball. And I think you know the likes of Riley Meredith and Caleb Jewell as, as sort of young players coming through has, has added a little bit of X factor. So yeah, we're so far so good, but it's uh, it's a long season, and obviously once we you know make the finals, it's a, it's a new season. And how much work goes into planning the list for the Hurricanes? Yeah, a lot of work, and and work over a number of years as well. So there's the sort of short term, what do we need now to win this season, and then the longer term view of how are we developing players to ensure that we are still competitive in three seasons' time. So uh, straight after the stickly. Um, frenetic time if players are out of contracts. Um, we try not to let any of our must-have players come out of contract at the end of the season. Um, but at the same time, you know, you're also looking at you know, how do you develop the likes of Meredith and Jules so that when Bailey and Faulkner, for example, retire, that they're ready to step up and continue their good form. And, and do you feel that the, the squad's well-placed now for the future as well as this season? Yeah, I do. I think we've got a good combination um, of, of youth and experience. George is, is clearly our, um, our oldest player, but I, I think that the way he's going at the moment, he's got a couple of seasons left in him. But at the same time, some of our best players, you know, Short, McDermott, Meredith and the like, they're, uh, they're really starting to, to step up and they've got a lot of cricket ahead of them. Now, I, I noted with great interest that you've signed a new international player for the rest of your season, a young Afghanistani leggy called Case Ahmed. It looks like he's got a tremendous record in T20 cricket. Can you tell me and the listeners a bit about him? Yes, yeah, certainly. Look, Case uh, is one of us, the phalanx of, of Afghani spinners that um, has sort of uh, you know, risked to prominence over the last couple of years through the T20 format. Uh, he's uh, a leg spinner. He's played. He's just been playing in the Bangladesh Premier League and last year played for St Lucia in the Caribbean Premier League. So he's got quite a bit of big tournament T20 experience. And he, he's a similar sort of bowler to Rashid Khan, obviously not as accomplished at this point in his career, but he's only uh, 19 or 20. Bowls fast, leg spinners, and will provide a bit of variety and something a bit different to our, uh, our current spinners. So did you identify that that was an area in the squad that you, you needed to strengthen, having another spinner? Yeah, well, when um, Tamal Mills was injured, uh, we were leaning towards getting a 
batsman who could bat in the top three because we, our expectation was one of, or maybe two of, Short, Wade and McDermott could get picked for the um, ODI team. And so we were really thinking about using that uh, space for a batsman. But uh, when none of them were picked by the uh, selectors, that sort of shifted our mind elsewhere. And, and with Johan Bota's uh, untimely retirement, uh, all of a sudden we were looking at it in, in the spin uh, uh, perspective. Before you signed Kays Ahmed, uh, Rashid Khan mentioned he had about seven brothers, I think. Did you try and call any of them first? <laughs> I wasn't aware of that. If they bowl as well as him, then maybe we should have. Well, he he said he's the worst leg spinner in his family, so <laughs> might be something to look, look at I, next year. Uh, there are a lot, and I, my understanding is that you know, there was a spin camp held in Afghanistan just recently, and there are about seventy-five leg spinners that showed up. Probably each one of them would be in the top three ranked uh, leg spinners in Australia. So certainly they're producing a lot of them, and it's an amazing cricket story, really, Afghanistan, considering. You know, ten years ago, they were playing against the likes of Japan in ICC Associates tournaments. So they have come a long way very fast, and they'll be a bit of a surprise packet in, in uh, the World Cup this year. Yep, Australia have them first up. Could be a, a banana skin. <laughs> yeah, actually, we're not the spitting wicket. Yeah, exactly. Now, you mentioned Matt Wade before. He's just, every time you turn on the TV, he's smashing runs for the Hurricanes. And he, he has been left out of national uh, teams. Do, do you sort of talk to someone like Wadey and just, you know, have a chat with him about how to handle his non-selections? Or do you stay away from that kind of thing? Uh, look, it's, it's not my domain. So that's really the domain of Trudian, who's our head of high performance, or Adam Griffith, who's our head coach. They, they would talk to him about that. He's, um, he's in a pretty good place in terms of his uh, mental state around selection or non-selection. I think when he was he was dropped as the incumbent wicketkeeper for Tim Payne you know, about 18 months ago, two years ago, that really was a weight off his shoulders and he, he now just enjoys his cricket. He doesn't worry about, worry about whether he's being selected or not and that's probably been a contributing factor to how well he's playing. So you know, we just encourage him to focus on how you know, the next game and, and how he's going and, and we'll try and fight the fight for him at the selectors table. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about the format of the Big Bash this year and the scheduling, and there's there's so much to unpack of this, but let's start with the positives. From your point of view as a someone in charge of a, a Big Bash franchise, what do you think's been good about the Big Bash this year? Oh, look, I, th- I think the, the expanded uh, format, A, delivers a, a pure experience in terms of uh, competition, so everyone playing everyone else twice in a season, which... I think from a, a tournament perspective is the ideal situation. It was a bit distorted previously when, for example, we played Brisbane Heat twice, but other teams only played them once, or you know, the, the derbies in Melbourne and Sydney. So now we've got a, a really pure draw, and, and the best teams that make the finals have had a chance to play everyone home and away. Um, I think the extra games have allowed clubs, including ourselves, to take more games to regional areas. And I, I'd certainly say for your listeners, that's one of the key reasons that uh, Big Bash exists, and I think that's been forgotten in this debate, is that Big Bash is about providing a visible pathway for boys and girls to become passionate about cricket. And visible pathway doesn't mean just playing all your games at the MCG or the SCG or Blunston Arena. It means getting out in, into the regions where the people are and playing high-level quality cricket um, for them to see. So whether that was playing in Geelong or the Gold Coast or Launceston, Maui, this is really helping grow the game of cricket. I mean, just as an example, in Launceston, we had 13,000 people there last week, of which about 30% had never seen a Big Bash game before. 
And we followed that up with our clinic with all of our players in the morning at Latrobe, which is a, a country town not too far from uh, Devonport. And um, we had 300 kids there, of which 250 weren't registered to any formal cricket program. Now, that's why the Big Bash exists. Um, and I, I think that uh, a little bit of the debate has been distorted by you know, some commentators who perhaps don't understand the strategic reasons behind the, the Big Bash. What are some of the challenges for the Big Bash, do you think? What do you think needs to be kind of fine-tuned for next season? Yeah, I think there's there's two. There's a, there's a micro-challenge and then there's a macro one. I think that the micro-challenge is, is what, I, what I talked about, which is the vagaries of the, the, the season. So certain markets, certain games work really well, while in other markets they don't. So well, we were really interested that between Christmas and New Year, uh, our Hurricanes game wasn't that strong, um, played here in Hobart. But there's a lot of things going on in Hobart at that time. While when I was general manager of Sydney Thunder, between Christmas and New Year was when you had your biggest games. So you know, using some of that uh, market intelligence to understand the best time to play your games is something that the league will get better and better at. I think from a, a macro perspective, you know, it, it's it's understanding you know, where the best time to start the season is, you know, finish the season, how long the finals uh, should should be, you know, I guess also international players and their role. There's been some commentary about whether there should be some extra payment for them and, and looking at some of those, those bigger structural issues. But one of the things, you know, with something with as many moving parts as the Big Bash is that the league, BBLHQ, they need to make sure that they only change a few things every season rather than changing 10 things because otherwise you won't really have a, a clear understanding of what's working and what isn't if you keep changing um, over and over again. And you can change something and it can have unintended consequences. So I, they'll be really circumspect about any changes they make, and I don't think the changes will be dramatic or violent. I think they'll be fine-tuning, and, and they'll continue to do that, actually. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the idea of coming up with a, a marquee player fund for all, all the clubs to lure some international stars over because I'm a big believer is, you know, you have to operate in the, the market, and, and the market's determining the, the higher prices for international players, and I think they're invaluable for marketing. I mean, there's nothing more tantalising than going to a game and knowing you're about to see a sort of big star go out there and see what he can do. So I think there is some merit in something like that. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I would also say a couple of things. One is when the MOU negotiations were going on, um, what, two years ago now, you know, the, the ACA were really keen for the, most of the uplift in any you know, broadcast deal to go towards state contracts rather than big bash contracts. So we're you know, living the consequences of that decision and not, I'm not commenting on whether that's a good or a bad decision, but the TV rights went up significantly, but you know, Big Bash pay only went up 5%. So naturally, um, it's going to be underfunded in, in a way compared to what sort of level of this is generating. But the other thing I'd say is you know, being quite active in terms of signing players, that this perception that there are a lot of high-profile players out there who would love to pay play the big bash that paid more is, is actually incorrect. Uh, the biggest challenge we have at the moment in terms of signing players is the amount of international white ball cricket that is currently being played in late December into January. And that's what's restricted the availability. Yes, there are a couple of players like A.B. De Villiers, Andre Russell, who may have been available, although, again, some of them have chosen to play T20X, the, the UAE tournament before it got cancelled. But most players just weren't available because they were playing for their uh, national teams. Or in the instance of the likes of West Indies, South Africa, for example, they're also playing in their home league. So 
or New Zealand as well. So when they're not playing for the national team, they're actually playing their equivalent of Sheffield Shield or their equivalent of JLT Cup or indeed their equivalent of the Big Bash in um, New Zealand's case. So there's a lot of contributing factors to the availability of international players that actually don't have anything to do with money. And you know, we could quadruple the wages, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to get quadruple the star power. And I'd, I'd say the final point on that is that international players are often cheaper than domestic players because theoretically, you know, international players, there's an infinite market. There's, there's every country, there's, there's lots of options, but good domestic players who are available for 14 games who aren't playing for Australia are very rare. And they're actually the most expensive players in the big bash, not the international players. Oh, that's interesting. Certainly, I think then Cricket Australia with their schedule needs to look at trying to maximise the involvement of the best Australian players in the competition. I mean, we saw it this year that they've been available a bit more, but we did have the one-day internationals in January that pulled quite a few white ball players out of the Big Bash Club. So maybe we need to sort of try and make our best players available like India does. I mean, if you want it to be a top competition, then you've got to bite the bullet somehow. Well, true. Well, India are able to play their, you know, their T20 tournament um, in a t- at a time of the year that we, we can't. Um, our grounds aren't available uh, at that time of year because of the football codes. They also have a lot more money than us and they've managed to negotiate with all member nations a window where there's no international cricket. Uh, so, you know, they're good at, it's a, difficult to compare with the IPL because they've got a whole lot of conditions that we can't possibly have. Now, the problem with, you know, scheduling one-day international cricket outside the Big Bash window is that... That's the reason why the Big Bash window is when it is, is the best time for attendance. So if we put ODI cricket into March, that's not really going to garner a lot of you know interest or attendance. So and also doesn't necessarily align with when other teams who are touring are available. So there's a lot of moving parts, and, and the challenge is that cricket's unique. We have three different formats that are often played concurrently, and so we can't look at another sport and sort of say, well, what do they do? How can we borrow ideas of how they cope? State of Origin and the NRL is probably the closest thing where a Melbourne Storm for a few weeks would lose their best players to Queensland and we had the same thing. My view though is that you need to plan accordingly. So we, we did plan uh, and had a very specific contingency if you know short McDermott Wade got picked for Australia. But you know similarly, some of those players playing not so much uh, white ball but red ball, some of the players playing in the test team, they're not actually in the best 11 of a big bash team anyway. So I'm, I'm not sure that we're actually missing that many players. We're maybe missing five at any any one time. But you know what it also does is it gives some young players an opportunity to present their case. So, you know, Joe Richardson, uh, as an example, may not have got his opportunity uh, to, to press for his Australian selection if he hadn't have had a chance to play for the Scorchers. If Stark and Hazelwood are available for the Sixers, does, does Ben Dorsius get to bowl? Does Sean Abbott gets a bowl. Yeah, yeah, I'm but not sure, but don't you think it's better for the league if Stark and Hazelwood are playing? <laughs> I think it's, uh, yeah, of, of, of course it is. I mean, of course it is if, if you've got uh, the best players every, playing every game all the time, but that's that's clearly not going to happen. And, you know, I, I think if we're talking about two or three players who are, you know, genuine T20 superstars, I wouldn't say that Hazelwood is, um, but Stark definitely. Uh, that, yeah, of course it would be great to see them playing, but. Uh, you know, they're playing test cricket over that time. Test cricket is a very important format and there's really no 
easy solution. It's it's not possible to find a window where you can only play T20, only play Test cricket, only play ODIs, unfortunately, because of the nature of our season, the nature of the future tours program. Yeah, I think the people that do the schedules at Cricket Australia call it 4D chess, trying to get it all together. <laughs> so I do feel for them. I, I do feel for them. I know it's, you know, you've got international teams that have their... Uh, set conditions so it's not as easy as, as it sounds I guess before I let you go Nick I just want to ask you about some innovations I've got for the big bash I've got a few ideas I want to throw at you so the first idea I've got is developing a ball that in the crowd the the person could keep if they catch it rather than throwing it back having a sort of generic t20 ball that someone would get a souvenir like in baseball that's so successful so they they catch it someone goes and gives them another ball? No, they, they keep the ball and the umpires just pull out another generic cherry, which also would save this delay when the ball gets hit over the fence or over the stand sometimes and you have to get a new ball, just have a generic T20 ball. Look, I'm, I'd be fully supportive of that. You know, we have spoken about that idea before, but the, the players are dead against it. Principally, the, the, the personality or the nature of the ball is, is key in any, any game. So you may have a, a ball that is performing in a particular way, it gets into the crowd and, and is kept and then they get another ball uh, and it has a completely different set of properties. And so, yeah, the players are, are very hesitant to um, to do that. But I, I quite like the idea of catch and keep um, mm. and it has been discussed before. Good. What about um, that poor bloke that copped it in the, the head um, no. at the Hurricanes game? Did you, go, yes. did you have to sort of check on him and check on his welfare after something like that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, he, he was not too far away from where I was sitting, so I actually heard the noise as it hit his glasses. He, sat, he was wearing sunglasses. Yeah, all all, um, all venues have a ball strike uh, policy because it is one of the um, the risks of going to see 220, and uh, yeah, there is a policy about checking on anyone who who gets hit by the ball, whether that's through a, you know, an incorrect catching technique or maybe they were talking to a friend next door. Yeah, it definitely is something that's uh, one of the one of the dangers of, of I guess big bash. But I, I, thinking about catch and keep though, that that's another example where you can have unintended consequences. Which if all of a sudden you can keep the ball, um, the level of desperation or commitment of some fans in the in the crowd could also uh, produce some risks that could could endanger some other people as people are diving four rows across to try and catch the ball. Yeah, was that bloke all right? By the way, yeah, yeah, he was, he was fine. Good. Uh, yeah, we have seen in baseball, tragic, tragically, a couple of people fall off stands trying to catch balls. So you're right, it, it has happened. Uh, what about DRS for big bash games, having one review per team every game? Yeah, again, it has been discussed, and uh, I'd also be in favour of this. The, the reason why it's not in at the moment is that there's a view that it slows the game down too much. And I guess it's also a bit arbitrary. One one review or five reviews really should be to there to stop a you know a blatantly poor decision. But the concern at the moment is that it will slow the game down too much. Personally, I'd rather have less time spent on trying to work out whether someone's uh, little toe has touched the boundary rope and very quickly make a decision whether something uh, something is a four or a six, um, and have have time for a DRS. But uh, certainly. That's where it's at at the moment is the view is it takes too long. All right. What about the player safety? And I'm thinking about bowlers wearing some kind of head protection because 
balls are coming back at bowlers now so quickly. It's uh, an accident waiting to happen. That, that's a that's a great question. There's one I can recall, which is Luke Fletcher playing for Nottinghamshire, which your listeners can look on Google, was a particularly nasty one. That's a mid straight back at him. But um, look, it's been it's been disgust. I, I, I think. The bowlers probably in, in less danger in some ways because they're on the move and um, you know are, are looking for the return catch as opposed to say the umpires. And there's a couple of umpires that wear helmets now, uh, standing at um, you know behind the wickets there. But um, again, pra- practical application of bowling in a helmet or, or, or protection that is strong enough that's actually going to be worthwhile because you'd need to protect your face obviously and you'd need to protect your temple and yeah, they, it'd be quite complicated and uh, it is a rare uh, thing that happens. It, obviously when it does happen it can be pretty nasty but uh, yeah, I'm not sure what the solution is there probably for uh, minds greater than mine to uh, consider. The bowlers can make the helmets look pretty scary that add to their <laughs> menace as they came into bowl with some kind of like horror movie mask. Anyway, um, last question then what what do we do with Christmas Day or Christmas Eve cricket? They, they tried Christmas Eve cricket at Spotless Stadium, your old uh, haunting ground. You were in charge of the Thunder for a number of years. What should they do about Christmas Day cricket or Christmas Eve cricket? Yeah, well, I mean, we also had our Christmas Eve game at Bunsen Arena. Uh, so before, so our game went from four to seven, and then the Thunder Sixers game went from from seven onwards. Uh, our game was was pretty successful. We got a, a, a. It's always hard to sell before Christmas. They're they're hard sells because there's so much going on in people's lives. With, you know, end of school, end of work, Christmas parties, those sorts of things. Wrapping so, presents. Wrapping presents. So Christmas Eve for us was quite successful, and so we're quite keen to try and develop that. The, the sort of early afternoon or late afternoon, sorry, four to seven is quite a good time, and then we ran Christmas carols straight off the back of that. Uh, which we had, you know, about 1,500 people stay for, which is a, which is a good number at Blunston Arena. So I, I think that there's certainly merit in building on that, and I think we'll get more people come back uh, next season. They they really enjoyed that. Christmas Day, I think Christmas night is so PM of the 25th of uh, December is well worth consideration. It all comes down to family tradition, doesn't it? So in my family, there's no way that we would have been allowed to go to a sports event on Christmas night because that was when we visited my mum's side of the family. But, you know, other families, you know, they might do something in the middle of the day and then not do anything at night time and then they'll go out to the pub or they'll go to a movie or they... So there's a lot of families that actually don't do anything on Christmas night and, you know, all of a sudden that becomes really appealing for them. There's also a lot of families that aren't Christian. So it's kind of an assumption that everyone's family tradition is exactly the same. Uh, from a player perspective, yes, it means the players will be working on Christmas Day, but those that play on Boxing Day are usually travelling on Christmas Day anyway. And I think if you can get your scheduling right, so for example, have two Sydney teams playing against each other or two Melbourne teams playing against each other, it allows everyone to have Christmas morning with their family and then they can play at night time. So... Yeah, I'd be keen to see Christmas Eve continue. I'd be keen to see it continue in Hobart. And I'd love to see them have a look at Christmas night and see how that performs, A, from a crowd perspective, but then also B, from a television perspective. Yeah, I'm, I'm one of those people that doesn't do much on Christmas Day. So um, the Big Bash is an attractive prospect for me. Well, Nick, there you go. Nick, thank you so much for your time and coming on the podcast. It's been a really interesting discussion to, to get some more insights into what goes on behind the scenes of the Big Bash. And, Good luck with the Hurricanes for the rest of the summer. Thanks a lot. Well, that's it for another episode of Cricket Unfiltered. Thanks to Sam Landsberger, Ben Dwarshus and Nick Cummins for coming on the show. Another ripper. 
You've been listening to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I am your host, Andrew Mentzel, and I'll be back soon with another podcast. 